Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Dialogue, Phaedo, Part 8 Thus much, said Socrates, of Harmonia, your Theban goddess, who has graciously yielded to us. But what shall I say, Cebes, to her husband Cadmus? And how shall I make peace with him? I think that you will discover a way of propitiating him, said Cebes. I am sure that you have put the argument with Harmonia in a manner that I could never have expected. For when Simeus was mentioning his difficulty, I quite imagined that no answer could be given to him. And therefore, I was surprised at finding that his argument could not sustain the first onset of yours, and not impossibly the other, whom you call Cadmus, may share a similar fate. Nay, my good friend, said Socrates, let us not boast, lest some evil eye should put to flight the word which I am about to speak. That, however, may be left in the hands of those above, while I draw near in Homeric fashion, and try the metal of your words. Here lies the point. You want to have it proven to you that the soul is imperishable and immortal, and the philosopher who is confident in death appears to you to have but a vain and foolish confidence, if he believes that he will fare better in the world below than one who has led another sort of life, unless he can prove this. And you say that the demonstration of the strength and divinity of the soul, and her entrance into the human form, may be a sort of disease, which is the beginning of dissolution, and may at last, after the toils of life are over, end in that which is called death. And whether the soul enters into the body once only, or many times, does not, as you say, make any difference in the fears of individuals. For any man who is not devoid of sense must fear, if he has no knowledge and can give no account of the soul's immortality. This, or something like this, I suspect to be your notion, Cebes, and I designedly recur to it in order that nothing may escape us, and that you may, if you wish, add or subtract anything. But, said Cebes, as far as I see at present, I have nothing to add or subtract. I mean what you say that I mean. Socrates paused a while, and seemed to be absorbed in reflection. At length he said, You are raising a tremendous question, Cebes, involving the whole nature of generation and corruption, about which, if you like, I will give you my own experience, and if anything which I say is likely to avail towards the solution of your difficulty, you may make use of it. I should very much like, said Cebes, to hear what you have to say. Then I will tell you, said Socrates. When I was young, Cebes, I had a prodigious desire to know that department of philosophy which is called the investigation of nature, to know the causes of things, and why a thing is, and is created or destroyed, appeared to me to be a lofty profession, and I was always agitating myself with the consideration of questions such as these. Is the growth of animals the result of some decay, which the hot and cold principle contracts, as some have said? Is the blood the element with which we think, or the air, or the fire, or perhaps nothing of the kind? But the brain may be the originating power of the perceptions of hearing, and sight, and smell, and memory and opinion may come from them, and science may be based on memory and opinion when they have attained fixity. 
and then I went on to examine the corruption of them, and then to the things of heaven and earth, and at last I concluded myself to be utterly and absolutely incapable of these enquiries, as I will satisfactorily prove to you. For I was fascinated by them to such a degree that my eyes grew blind to things which I had seemed to myself, and also to others, to know quite well. I forgot what I had before thought self-evident truths. For example, such a fact as that the growth of man is the result of eating and drinking. For when by the digestion of food flesh is added to flesh and bone to bone, and whenever there is an aggregation of congenial elements, the lesser bulk becomes larger, and the small man great. Was not that a reasonable notion? Yes, said Cebes, I think so. Well, but let me tell you something more. There was a time when I thought that I understood the meaning of greater and less pretty well, and when I saw a great man standing by a little one, I fancied that one was taller than the other by a head, or one horse would appear to be greater than another horse, and still more clearly did I seem to perceive that ten is two times more than eight, and that two cubits are more than one, because two is the double of one. And what is now your notion of such matters? said Cebes. I should be far enough from imagining, he replied, that I knew the cause of any of them. By heaven I should. For I cannot satisfy myself that, when one is added to one, the one to which the addition is made becomes two, or that the two units added together make two by reason of the addition. I cannot understand how, when separated from the other, each of them was one, and not two. And now, when they are brought together, the mere juxtaposition, or meeting of them, should be the cause of their becoming two. Neither can I understand how the division of one is the way to make two, for then a different cause would produce the same effect. As in the former instance the addition and juxtaposition of one to one was the cause of two, in this the separation and subtraction of one from the other would be the cause nor am I any longer satisfied that I understand the reason why one or anything else is either generated or destroyed or is at all. But I have in my mind some confused notion of a new method, and can never admit the other. Then I heard someone reading, as he said, from a book of Anaxagoras, that mind was the disposer and cause of all. And I was delighted at this notion which appeared quite admirable. And I said to myself, If mind is the disposer, mind will dispose all for the best, and put each particular in the best place. And I argued that if any one desired to find out the cause of the generation or destruction or existence of anything, he must find out what state of being or doing or suffering was best for that thing. And therefore, a man had only to consider the best for himself and others, and then he would also know the worse, since the same science comprehended both. And I rejoiced to think that I had found in Anaxagoras a teacher of the causes of existence such as I desired. And I imagined that he would tell me first whether the earth is flat or round. And whichever was true, he would proceed to explain the cause and the necessity of this being so and then he would teach me the nature of the best, and show that this was best. And if he said that the earth was in the center, 
he would further explain that this position was the best, and I should be satisfied with the explanation given, and not want any other sort of cause. And I thought that I would then go on and ask him about the sun, and moon, and stars, and that he would explain to me their comparative swiftness, and their returnings in various states, active and passive, and how all of them were for the best. For I could not imagine that when he spoke of mind as the disposer of them, he would give any other account of their being as they are, except that this was best. And I thought that when he had explained to me in detail the cause of each and the cause of all, he would go on to explain to me what was best for each and what was good for all. These hopes I would not have sold for a large sum of money. And I seized the books and read them as fast as I could in my eagerness to know the better and the worse. What expectations I had formed! And how grievously was I disappointed! As I proceeded, I found my philosopher altogether forsaking mind or any other principle of order, but having recourse to air, and ether, and water, and other eccentricities. I might compare him to a person who began by maintaining generally that mind is the cause of the actions of Socrates, but who, when he endeavored to explain the causes of my several actions in detail, went on to show that I sit here because my body is made up of bones and muscles. And the bones, as he would say, are hard and have joints which divide them, and the muscles are elastic, and they cover the bones, which have also a covering or environment of flesh and skin which contains them. And as the bones are lifted at their joints by the contraction or relaxation of the muscles, I am able to bend my limbs. And this is why I am sitting here in a curved posture. That is what he would say. And he would have a similar explanation of my talking to you, which he would attribute to sound, and air, and hearing. And he would assign ten thousand other causes of the same sort, forgetting to mention the true cause, which is that the Athenians have thought fit to condemn me. And accordingly, I have thought it better and more right to remain here and undergo my sentence. For I am inclined to think that these muscles and bones of mine would have gone off long ago to Megara or Boeotia. By the dog they would, if they had been moved only by their own idea of what was best. And if I had not chosen the better and nobler part, instead of playing truant and running away, of enduring any punishment which the state inflicts. There is surely a strange confusion of causes and conditions in all this. It may be said, indeed, that without bones and muscles and the other parts of the body, I cannot execute my purposes. But to say that I do as I do because of them, and that this is the way in which mind acts, and not from the choice of the best, is a very careless and idle mode of speaking. I wonder that they cannot distinguish the cause from the condition, which the many, feeling about in the dark, are always mistaking and misnaming. And thus one man makes a vortex all round, and steadies the earth by the heaven. Another gives the air as a support to the earth, which is a sort of broad trough. Any power which in arranging them as they are arranges them for the best never enters into their minds and instead of finding any superior strength in it, they rather expect to discover another atlas of the world who is stronger and more everlasting and more containing than the good. Of the obligatory and containing power of the good, they think nothing.
And yet, this is the principle which I would fain learn if anyone would teach me. But as I have failed either to discover myself or to learn of anyone else the nature of the best, I will exhibit to you, if you like, what I have found to be the second best mode of inquiring into the cause. I should very much like to hear, he replied. Socrates proceeded. I thought that as I had failed in the contemplation of true existence, I ought to be careful that I did not lose the eye of my soul. As people may injure their bodily eye by observing and gazing on the sun during an eclipse, unless they take the precaution of only looking at the image reflected in the water, or in some similar medium. So, in my case, I was afraid that my soul might be blinded altogether if I looked at things with my eyes or tried to apprehend them by the help of the senses. And I thought that I had better have recourse to the world of mind and seek there the truth of existence. I dare say that the simile is not perfect, for I am very far from admitting that he who contemplates existence through the medium of thought sees them only through a glass darkly, any more than he who considers them in action and operation. However, this was the method which I adopted. I first assumed some principle which I judged to be the strongest, and then I affirmed as true whatever seemed to agree with this whether relating to the cause or to anything else, and that which disagreed I regarded as untrue. But I should like to explain my meaning more clearly, as I do not think that you as yet understand me. No, indeed, replied Cebes, not very well. There is nothing new, he said, in what I am about to tell you, but only what I have been always and everywhere repeating in the previous discussion and on other occasions. I want to show you the nature of that cause which has occupied my thoughts. I shall have to go back to those familiar words which are in the mouth of everyone, and first of all assume that there is an absolute beauty, and goodness, and greatness, and the like. Grant me this, and I hope to be able to show you the nature of the cause, and to prove the immortality of the soul. Sibi said, You may proceed at once with the proof, for I grant you this. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be, and when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.